Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. All right, um, uh, welcome everybody. I think we'll, we'll make a start for the second day of our... Uh, symposium. Uh, welcome to, the, to those of you who have come back this morning to join us for this session. And as you know, with this symposium, we're trying to bring together thinking about uh, academic research and evidence and what it means to gather evidence, what kinds of evidence count in policymaking with an understanding of the processes of policymaking and the political context in which policymaking takes place. And um, in order to give ourselves not just kind of interdisciplinary purchase on some of these questions, but also a sense of an understanding of how we relate to changes in the political world. So in, in that respect, we're delighted this morning to welcome um, as our keynote speaker, Lord Kerslake. Um, I think I, 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 I may hope I can spare his blushes by saying I think he's one of the most distinguished public servants of his generation. He was uh, chief executive of Sheffield City Council. He then went on to become the chief executive of the Homes and Communities Agency, our national agency for housing and regeneration, then to become the permanent secretary at the Department of Communities and Local Government and the head of the civil service. And since leaving government and joining the House of Lords, he's taken on important um, public sector and charitable roles, chair of King's College uh, NHS Trust, the Peabody Housing Association, and importantly, uh, has worked a lot over the last year on questions of uh, devolution, constitutional and political reform in the context of a, a changing United Kingdom, which has been you know, profound in recent years, uh, and of course with Brexit, challenges of, of how we relate to each other within the Union as well as relating to the European Union become incredibly important. So it's a, it's, we're really pleased that you've been able to come and join us this morning, Bob, and we look forward to your remarks. Thank you. Okay, well, good morning, everybody, and it is good to be uh, talking in the city of my birth, in fact. Uh, maybe you'll pick that up as I go along. The accent is still there a little <laughs> bit. My kids tease me by trying to get me to say uh, Cheddar Gorge, but um, and it works every time. It gets, it gets a laugh from them every time. Uh, look, um, I wanted to talk today about what I think is a very important issue, and that's around constitutional reform. Uh, and uh, the reasons why I think this is so fundamental. And I think the reference point for this really is uh, the referendum. Now, in my view, there was no what has been called Portillo moment on the night of the referendum. Uh, the uh, most memorable thing is the returning officer giving you the results of the different counts in different areas. Really, arguably, the, the Portillo moment came later in the political turmoil that followed the result of the referendum. Now, my favourite, as far as that's concerned, is Boris Johnson's announcement of his intention not to stand for the leader of the Conservative Party, uh, to the evident shock and disbelief of not only his supporters, but the journalists as well. And if you look at the pictures of it, there is a, a journalist whose mouth is quite literally wide open in disbelief. That is my favourite Portillo moment, if I can call it that from the referendum campaign. You'll no doubt have your own. Now, I think it's fair to say that the political turmoil from uh, the result of the referendum is beginning to settle down, at least for the Conservative Party, if not for Labour. And a lot's been written about that political crisis. But I think, actually, the referendum result provoked, as much as anything, a constitutional crisis. Uh, and I think that is of equal, if not greater, magnitude. 
Now, the most obvious manifestation of that is the position of Scotland and whether there'll be another referendum pro post, if you like, uh, uh, Brexit on independence or even before that. But I think the constitutional challenges for the UK go much, much deeper than this. And there isn't just one issue, there's a series of interconnected issues that you have to consider and tackle together rather than in isolation. Now, in their desire to draw a line under what was a deeply divisive referendum campaign and move on, it's understandable that the government want to bury these issues. Uh, Brexit means Brexit, uh, whatever that phrase actually means. Uh, we must now focus on the task of delivering it is where government is. Uh, and the country, uh, that old phrase, needs stability after this political turmoil. And we therefore need to return to the uh, business as usual and indeed politics as usual. Now I get why they want to do that from their perspective. It's been a traumatic moment, if you like, in political terms. But in my view, it would be a grave mistake. I think the scale of the challenges we face constitutionally demand an open debate and a comprehensive response. Muddling through is simply not going to be enough. Now, there isn't time today to do justice to all these constitutional issues. I would recommend, if you're interested in this, in reading Burnham, Bogdanov's brilliant paper on, on this issue. So what I'm going to concentrate on are just two uh, particular issues. And I think the first one, and the one that I feel most passionately about, is devolution. Uh, for me, this is not just a question of uh, a desirable change in policy. Uh, it is core to the reformed constitutional settlement. Uh, and indeed, the longer I was in central government, the more persuaded I was about the need for central government to do less and allow others to do more. Uh, the centralization of this country, which is probably one of the most centralized, if not the most centralized country in the OECD, crowds out the capacity to make good decision making at the center of government. Uh, and I think it is a fundamental of that. So for me, greater devolution of spending and income raising, both to Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, but crucially within England, is not just desirable, but it's essential to constitutional renewal. Now, last year I chaired an inquiry that looked at how we could deliver better devolution across the whole of the UK. And we had a very wide range of political views in that group, ranging from the Greens, the Conservatives, uh, to Northern Ireland politicians, to obviously the main political parties. There was an overwhelming consensus from that group about the need for radical change. I think the review recommended and indeed uh, supported and welcomed some of the devolutionary steps that have been made by the government not least the so-called deal-based approach to delegation within England. But overall, we found that the government's approach had been piecemeal and incoherent. And in particular, there was not a consistent approach to the devolved nations. Devolution deals were too focused on cities and mayors 
and therefore excluded wide-ranging other areas from the conversation. Significant areas that really ought to be part of devolution were effectively excluded, such as education from the negotiations. And I think last but not least, uh, devolution of uh, functions was what was up for debate, but devolution of functions has to be accompanied by much greater capacity to raise income locally. You can't simply devolve responsibility without devolving income raising powers. That isn't devolution, that's decentralization at best um, and passing the buck at worst. So given the lack of progress on devolution, I think it was reasonable for Greg Clark to argue that actually maybe the uh, approach he was following was the best one, that actually what you should do is to embark on a journey without knowing where you're trying to end up, almost make a virtue of that. But our review saw real limitations uh, in that approach. And the reason for that is this really, devolution is intrinsically disruptive to Whitehall, intrinsically disruptive. I remember when I was head of the civil service, we took forward an initiative on devolution to cities, the first one. And one of the permanent secretaries said, uh, I'm perfectly okay with all of this devolution as long as it doesn't uh, interfere with my national plans. Um, and I kind of said to him, well, that is the point. Um, so it is something that cuts across, if you like, the whole way in which Whitehall works. Uh, and it is disruptive. It's like a disruptive technology. It's a disruptive process. So unless you have a very powerful advocate uh, in the form of someone like the Chancellor, it is too easy for individual deals to get watered down and reduced, uh, or indeed get completely bogged down and make no progress. So for the government to succeed, our review felt that they needed to have a much clearer state, statement of their ambition, that you did have to think about where you're trying to get to, albeit that different places would move at different speeds. Now, in my personal view, events since the referendum have absolutely confirmed the doubts of the panel. We've seen the departure of George Osborne and uh, the move of Greg Clark into a new role away from what has been his historic responsibility on cities. And that's taken out of government two of its most active champions of devolution who had real power to make things happen. It's also fair to say that uh, the devolution process for cities has hit some uh, bumpy uh, ground. Two of those devolution deals, uh, which after all were the forerunners of a much wider devolution, have foundered. In the case of the Northeast, uh, the deal is said to be off the table, quite literally off the table. In the case of Leeds City Region, the local partners simply can't agree on the issue of a mayor. There are indeed suggestions that Theresa May has gone cool on the idea of devolution of mayors uh, because she's worried that it will create alternative centres of power that might challenge the government. Again, I thought that was the point. Um, so I think we could see um, at best, if you like, a loss of momentum on devolution, and at worst, another failed initiative to move power away from Whitehall. 
And yet I think uh, the referendum has strengthened the case for devolution in a very compelling way. One of the key issues in the referendum was the imbalance economically between different parts of the UK. Devolution is key to economic rebalancing. We also face some really big challenges on our services, not least in health and care. And devolution offers the opportunity to join up those services at local level in a way that has so far defeated central government. Crucially for me, it can help close the gap between the governing and the governed. And that is, for me, one of the most uh, dominant features of the outcome of the referendum, the loss of trust, if you like, in the people who government uh, uh, represent. And it is central, even in London, in my view, uh, as our IPPR Housing Commission uh, report found, to tackling what is, I think, a growing housing crisis in London. And again, last but not least, it can free up Whitehall to focus on the big strategic issues such as Brexit uh, rather than often find itself managing, micromanaging the detail. And if you doubt what I say, I did sit through cabinet meetings where the issue of Starlings uh, holding up the development of a single site in the Medway came up at least twice during a cabinet debate. Ask yourself, is that good use of cabinet time? <laughs> It's also, by the way, politically popular devolution. An Ipsos Mori survey found that 79% of respondents trusted their council to make decisions on service provision in their local area, compared to just 11% for central government. And in the same survey, 82% of the respondents supported giving councils more devolution. So this is a policy that doesn't just, if you like, go with the grain of what's right constitutionally. It also could be, in my view, politically popular as well. And I think a bold approach to devolution would have at least these two components. First of all, transforming the union, the United Kingdom, into a voluntary, I emphasize that word, voluntary union of nations united by a common set of values and principles. The so-called reserve powers model should apply to all the devolved nations, and the most rigorous test should not be what should we devolve, but what should we reserve. And crucially, Scotland should be free to decide whether, when, and how it holds another referendum. That should not be something for the UK to make a decision on. But, and this is a crucial point, it should be clear in a way it wasn't for the EU referendum, what would be the terms of departure. So have a referendum whenever they want it, however they want it, but be clear what the consequences of that referendum outcome would be for the people of Scotland. This is a crucial issue, it seems to me, that we need to be clear on. And the second thing for me would be a really serious exercise to define what a full devolution model in England would look like. And crucially, what the stages towards that model would be. It doesn't need to be the same in every part of England. It doesn't need to go at the same speed, but we do need a set of clear and consistent organizational principles 
you do have to say, where are we trying to get to on this agenda? Now, let me just make, before I go on to my second key constitutional theme, two important points in passing. Firstly, it's important to say this will be a move towards a more federal model, a more federal model, but it would not be full federalism. Why do I say that? Well, it's because of the nature of the United Kingdom. Uh, England, if you like, has a huge uh, imbalance, or sorry, the UK has a huge imbalance with England constituting 85% of the population. In such situations, there is no other precedent for a federal, truly federal model working with that scale of imbalance between the different components of the federation. And therefore, you will always face an asymmetry. You will always face an asymmetry uh, in the relationship. And therefore, there has to be a situation in which the smaller nations do have an ability to input and contribute on the decisions of the larger component of the federation. And uh, as Vernon Bogdaner has said, asymmetry is the price we pay for retaining the union. So more federal, but not fully federal. The second point I make in passing is that you have to accept with devolution that there will be different choices and therefore different outcomes. Different places will make better decisions than others and that will impact on outcomes. It will impact on services and it will impact on uh, attainment and so on. You cannot avoid that with devolution. If you can't live with different outcomes, and that may be the view on things like the National Health Service, you have to accept uh, that the devolution can't be a full one. But devolution will lead to different results. But, and this is the crucial point, we have different results now. Centralism hasn't produced equal outcomes or equal opportunity even. What is absolutely crucial is that you put each place in the same position to succeed. They have equal, to use the term, capability. That is crucial, and to do that, you have to redistribute resources. There is no other way of doing it but to redistribute resources. So you will have different outcomes, but you must start from a position of equal capability. Let me move on to my second key constitutional theme. So I think greater devolution is an essential part of constitutional reform, but it's not enough. Equally important, in my view, is to reform our voting system. Now, let me just give you some statistics on this. In 1955, the Conservative Party won power with 314 seats and 38% of the total electorate voting for them. All those people able to vote, 38%. 60 years later, in 2015, they won power and 331 seats, more seats, but with the support of just 24% of the electorate. Extraordinary. And it was, in fact, the most disproportionate election outcome in UK history. It did not represent, as an outcome, how people voted. And there's a very simple reason for that. And that's because we have inexorably moved from being a two-party 
to a multi-party country. And our current first-past-the-post voting system fails in every respect to reflect this new reality. And this is as true locally in local elections as it is nationally. It's not just a national issue. In my view, the effect of this is to encourage a tribal approach to politics that focuses on core votes and marginal seats. And you could see that, I could see that in the last government, absolutely. Why did uh, housing, just give me one example, why was social housing so toxic for the last Conservative government? Very simple, uh, a leading member of that government, you can make your own conclusions, thought that uh, more social housing equaled more Labour voters. It's as simple as that. Extraordinary. That's what I call tribal politics. Um, and it's not just there were more Labour voters, it would be more Labour voters in seats that might be uh, at risk. And so those people who are not part of those areas being wooed, cultivated, feel utterly excluded from the political process. And there's a very relevant uh, corollary to that issue, if you like, and that's the decline of marginal seats uh, that was represented in the 2015 election. And there's an excellent blog uh, by um, three professors, Ron Johnson, Charles Patty, and David Manley, on the LSE website, which I'd encourage you to read. And let me just summarise some of the key points from it. The surge in the SNP in Scotland meant that many former marginal seats are now completely outreach, or out of the reach of Labour. In constituencies where the Liberal Democrats came second in 2010, their share of the vote in 2015 went to the Greens and UKIP rather than to the next biggest opposition party. And the consequence of that was that there was very little change in the total number of seats for the major parties when you add them up together, but there was a huge change in the number of safe seats for those parties. So if you take very safe as your definition, i.e. a 20% margin of victory, the Conservative gained 60 safe seats out of that process, going from 148 to 208, despite their share of the vote only going up by 0.8%. Labour gained 20 very safe seats, going from 115 to 135, with an additional 1.5% of the vote. But of course, the consequence of that is that there are far more, let's call them hopeless seats for both parties. Labour went from 248 to 284, and the Conservatives from 168 to 200. So if you are a supporter of the other party, let's call it that, in those seats, uh, you are far less likely now to have your view uh, understood, represented, reflected. And anybody who lives in a safe seat will know exactly what I'm talking about here. So much has been made of the mountain that Labour has to climb to have any chance of forming a majority next time. And it is indeed a huge mountain. The boundary changes will cause huge disruption, indeed not just for Labour. There are some real debates about whether the rigid approach to the size of such constituencies is right. But actually, I think as big, if not bigger, issue is that it's being done on an out-of-date register, uh, which in fact 
exclude some two million voters who did register during the referendum campaign. Uh, when there's a simple alternative, as the Electoral Reform Society said, of using population. And notwithstanding the fact that that was in the legislation, I think it has to be revisited. It is indefensible, in my view, to use data that is so completely out of date. But notwithstanding all of that, and those are really important here and now discussions, the next general election will still be undertaken with an electoral system that is woefully unfit for purpose. Defined for a two-party system that no longer exists and condemning a vast number of voters to having no ability to impact on the outcome in their area. This is the point at which people say, well, what about the alternatives? You know, aren't they just as bad? Well, actually, to quote an hour in Bevan, who's not quoted that often these days, you don't have to look at the crystal ball. You can look at the book. Scotland has a PR system for both the Scottish Parliament and the local elections. So why not take that as the starting point for the discussion on England and Wales? There is no practical impediment to changing our voting system. It's only an issue of political will. Now, until recently, these constitutional issues have been somewhat below the radar. But I think there are a growing number of people and organisations pushing for constitutional reform. And recently, uh, in the light of both the Scottish and the EU referendums, there's a much stronger call for what's called a constitutional convention, which the Electoral Reform Society is, is defined as a process for involving members of the public in making decisions about the constitutional shape of their country. And there is an example of this in the Scottish Constitutional Convention that paved the way to the Scottish Parliament. Now, we've always, as I've said earlier, had a piecemeal approach to these issues about how our state functions. And that's, if you like, typified by the fact that we have a so-called unwritten constitution as opposed to a codified, legally binding convention. And I would venture to suggest that one of the reasons why we have seen it so easy to reduce powers uh, for local government is the lack of that constitutional protection. We've seen, if you like, a rush of constitutional change in the late 90s, and more recently, as I've said, we've seen devolution and the so-called English votes for English laws. But one thing conspicuously absent from the constitutional debate has been the engagement of the public in that discussion. It has been a top-down Whitehall process. And one of the people now, somewhat surprisingly given his history, uh, who's now advocating a much more open approach is Gordon Brown, uh, who has argued for much greater devolution of powers to Scotland as a way of diluting the case for independence, but also for a UK-wide uh, constitutional structure a convention that allows debate to open up. I'm a supporter of this. I think such a convention that engages both the public and the political parties would move the debate from being a solely Whitehall-focused, um, Westminster-focused conversation. The public, in other words, needs to be drawn in. And let me just perhaps deal with two final issues before I finish. 
Firstly, uh, because it always comes up, should we have a second referendum on the EU? Now, my personal view on this, it is the wrong question to ask at this time, so recently after the vote. But we should return to this question once we're clearer what the terms of departure will be. Promises were made by the Brexiteers, I wasn't one of them, I have to say, that we would see major reinvestment of savings back into the NHS, that we would see tightly controlled immigration and a continuation of free trade and economic growth, that Britain would have a brighter future with more influence in the world and not less. These were very specific promises as part of the vote for Brexit. And we need to see whether these promises are delivered. If they are, then a second referendum would probably be redundant. If they fall short, then those who advocated remaining, I think, are entitled to say we should have a second vote. My second issue, and I can't possibly doubt this, is should the House of Lords be replaced by an elected chamber? <laughs> I am, of course, party pre. There is clearly a good case for change. We are an outlier in the way we run our country. And as somebody who's now been in the Lords for a while now, uh, perhaps the best thing about it is that I feel young again. <laughs> it's a long time since I've been the young whippersnapper. And I'm... <laughs> but more seriously, the future of the House of Lords needs to be resolved through open debate and through the political process. And if the outcome of that for the political parties is that we replace the current chamber with an elected one, I wouldn't resist that. I can see why that case is made. The Commons would have to accept that there was a second chamber with greater authority to amend legislation than at present. One of the reasons it's left as it is is because it allows the party, the government, party in government, to say you have no legitimacy. Uh, basically, it's a way of, and trust me, that happens when you challenge legislation. So I think it suits government to leave the House of Lords in its current state. Uh, but my personal view is, whichever way we go, and if we go down the appointed route rather than the elected route, there's plenty of room for reform. And I have my suggestions list in a, in a file to be released at the appropriate moment. <laughs> now, let me just conclude. I think we ignore this constitutional crisis uh, and the one that's been exposed by the referendum at our peril. I've argued on two areas for radical change, but there are many more that are needed. It's essential if we're going to get this right that we have an open debate that is not just dominated by the great and the good. And I'm absolutely of certain of one thing, and that is that we can't carry on as we are. Thank you.